0: Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me as always is Vincent M. Wales, and we are still here talking to Pulitzer Prize finalist Pete Early. Pete, thank you for talking to
2: us last week, and welcome back this week. Thanks for being here with us again, Pete. I understand that you recently co-authored a book with Jesse Close. Is that correct?
3: That's right. What I wanted to do is after I, look, I spent three months with the homeless. I couldn't get a publisher interested. So I start my blog and then I thought, you know, right now memoirs are really hot. And everybody's reading memoirs. And you got to remember that about 65% of all books are bought by women. Men tend to read Uh, nonfiction, and read for information. Women read for both, entertainment and. And I I heard Jesse speak in Chicago, and I thought, wow, you know, why don't I help her, and let's do a book about her life, and that would be a way then to tell the broader mental health story. And uh, so, yeah, we had a Great time. We did a book. She has an amazing story. And the thing that I like about Jessie's story is it's not only mental health, and she has some incredible uh, stories that she tells about when she was in the manic stage and how uh, her five husbands all loved her when she was in the manic stage because all she wanted to do was have sex and party <laughs> and everything else. And then when she was in the depressed stage in the closet crying, they didn't want anything to do with her. But it also is a wonderful co occurring story where you see how alcoholism and drugs really prey on people with mental illness and the combination and how people look down on her because they just figured she was using drugs all the time. And, you know, it's uh, I I think in many ways, drug addiction and uh, alcoholism are is either equally or in my experience, uh, even more difficult than sometimes dealing with mental health. You're probably right on that. So speaking of
2: writing, eh, see what I did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, nice segue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good job. (laughs) You've written some spy novels as well, right? Yeah, yeah.
3: I was back in my old life, which is what I call it, before I wrote Crazy, which is kind of dominated. I spend probably... 50% of my work week now uh, just writing pure mental health stuff and advocating. But before that, yeah, I was known as the spy writer. And what happened then was a guy named Bill O'Reilly appeared on Fox TV and a college professor went to him and said, hey, I've written this book. uh, You know, I don't know if this really happened, but this is how these things usually happen. I'm going to get $10,000 to publish this thing. But if you put your name on it and plug it, and by God, they made $3 million. And when that happened, everybody looked around and looked, oh, look, here's James Patterson, who there's allegedly hasn't written a book in five years, but he's on the bestseller list every night. And that's because he has six employees and he gives them the ideas and they run with it. So what happened then was I was doing so much mental health advocacy that I didn't have time to do, like I spent a year in prison to do a book called The Hot House: Life in Leavenworth. I spent a year in Vegas uh, in a casino. Uh, just writing about everyday events. That was a lot more fun than the prison, right. uh, you know, but what, then what happened was my agent called me and he said, look, you write spy books, uh, Newt Gingrich, former speaker of the house wants to do a house of cards, Washington type novel. And he's got a million followers or whatever. How about if I put you two together? And I said, okay. Uh, are they going to be political? And he said, no, uh, the speaker just wants to do good books with Washington Insider and match it with your spice. So I met him and it was very interesting because we don't agree politically on a lot of things, but his mother had mental illness and we hit it off. He's a brilliant man. And so I started writing novels with Newt, which irritated some of my blog readers. And they, when I put up a note that says, hey, I have a new book out with, with uh, the speaker, they say, don't. I I don't I don't read you because I want to buy books. You're supposed to be writing about mental health, <laughs> you know. Well, I'm sorry, folks; those pay the bills. Yeah, uh, you can't make everybody happy. Yeah, but it's also given me entree into a political world and contacts that then I've been able to use with mental health, and it it's proven especially interesting in the last five years because the Republicans were the ones who were really pushing under former. Representative Tim Murphy, to radically change mental health in America. And uh, the Democrats were fighting him on it. And it was an interesting interplay and, and an interesting minefield in that area, too. But it was because I worked with the speaker. It was always interesting because Republicans assumed I was on their side. Democrats assumed I wasn't. And then it, it's just been kind of fun to watch, actually.
1: The uh, It kind of reminds me of the art of war. You know, n- never declare a side, make people think you're stupid, and then you have all the power.
3: Well, I don't. I don't have to take much to make people think I'm stupid. So.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It's always no. been no. rather
2: easy for me. <laughs> and that's Peter. why you fit this show so well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you fit right in. The gang's all here. Yeah. Pete, I have a few questions for you. They they don't have a lot to do with mental health. They they really just have a lot to do uh, with you. You, you started off as a journalist, and you, you wrote for the Washington Post. What did you cover there? What was your, you know, most, most journalists cover something. Were you a political journalist? Well,
3: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you exactly how it is, and you can edit it out. But here's <laughs> the real story. Do it. I, I was one of six to eight people who were hired for what Ben Brad, Bradley, the legendary editor at the Washington Post, who I adored, Fabulous guy. Everybody loved him. He was, you know, Harvard blue blood, but he could cuss like a sailor. (laughs) What he called, and now no one ever wants to admit this, but what he called the holy shit squad. The holy shit squad was supposed to be people who didn't have anything to cover. We were supposed to do stories that made people sit up in the morning and when they lifted up their paper, go, holy, you know. I love it. Because they were so so dramatic. Well, I was the last person hired on that team. And the day I went to work or pretty close to it, a young lady named Janet Cook wrote a story about, I can't remember now if he was nine or 10 year old Jimmy and Jimmy's mother and her boyfriend were heroin addicts and they were injecting Jimmy with heroin and the whole town went nuts. And it caused this. the chief of police said, you have to tell us where this kid is. Child welfare said, tell us. The mayor said, you have to tell us. And Ben Bradley and everybody said, we don't reveal our sources. And then people said, well, then she made it up. And we said, no, she didn't. So anyway, this, all this stuff goes on. You can, you can look it up on the internet. It's a fascinating story that I lived through. But the bottom line is she wins a Pulitzer prize And bingo, she used to sit right next to me, by the way. I come in one morning and her entire desk is literally empty. I mean, the cubicle is stripped bare. I mean, it is an empty desk, empty drawers, no pictures, everything is gone. And that's when we discover that Janet made up the whole thing, that there was never any Jimmy, she made it up. And at that point, everyone on that squad got called in. All their stories were reviewed. I had done a story about a guy who sold guns to teenagers. I literally had to pull his record and come in and show it to him and say, look, right here, he's been arrested for this. And that was disbanded. And uh, several of my fellow members were suggested that they find jobs elsewhere and I ended up being assigned to what was called the Federal Report Page, which no longer exists. But I had the wonderful job, which I hated every day for three years, which was covering OSHA, MSHA, all the alphabet agencies and the federal government. And I'm a people person, and I'm not really big on reading thousand-page documents about minor safety, you know? And so it was a bad fit. I switched over to the magazine because it, it, the Washington Post, that was looked down on. The magazine was kind of a stepchild nobody cared about. And I scored the first interview with Arthur Walker. Arthur Walker was brother to John Walker. John Walker in 1986 was the equivalent of the Rosenbergs. He was the first major American spy since the Rosenbergs. And he got his brother his best friend, Jerry Whitworth, and Michael Walker, his son, and they sold secrets too. He got caught in 86. He'd been selling them since 69 to the Soviets, more than 18 years of, of betraying his country. So I got permission. I left, and I did a book called Family of Spies, and it was made into a five-hour miniseries, and it was a New York Times bestseller, and I thought, wow, this is easy. Uh, and I quit my job, much to my mother's chagrin. And I went off and I thought, I'll go to a prison. Because I always wondered what happens when you put a bunch of sharks together. And the Bureau of Prisons, uh, the head of the Bureau of Prisons says, I'm tired of you guys. You show up when there's a riot, but you don't know what's like day in, day out. So I said, well, I'll spend a year in a prison if you give me entree. So he gave me a pass. And so I'd go out 23 days and just wander around the prison and then Everybody knew I was a reporter, and then I'd come home from my own sanity and then go back out. And Until Crazy, that book, which remains my best-selling book, even though it was published in 1990, that book probably had the biggest influence in my life, except for Crazy. Uh, just to see how people with criminal minds and how the prison system works, it, it changes you forever.
1: Wow, that's incredible. An incredible story all the way around.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com.
1: the the last couple of questions just because you know eventually we do have to end the show uh your website where can people find the blog that we've been talking about for most of the show
3: uh it's under www pete early e-a-r-l-e-y dot com
1: dot com .com, right there and what's your next project what are you working on now do you have any books in the pipeline
3: i do i'm on deadline to write the the uh, the second book that I wrote with uh, Speaker Newt Ginrich is called Treason. It was a bestseller. Uh, our third one came out. It's called Vengeance. And those are about a female African-American who fights terrorism. And it was kind of funny because publishers said, what do two old white guys know about that? But anyway, it was a successful series. And now we're switching over to a more Jason Bourne type character with Washington intrigue for a, a new book still untitled. Uh, But we're going to create a new character that's, you know, an action hero. It's a lot of fun to write. So during the final days of the Obama administration, they signed a thing called the 21st Century Cures Act that created mental health legislation. Uh, They created a committee and there's 14 non-federal members, two have to be persons with lived experience, and there's one parent member, and that's me, and then there's providers and psychiatrists and all that. Our job is to try to force the eight agencies that run over 100 mental health programs to start cooperating. And it's been a fabulous experience and a frustrating experience, because the truth is you don't see a lot of interest in federal agencies wanting to, to collaborate. And we have over $2.2 billion that is given out every year to mental health programs. And it's one of my big frustrations is this money does not trickle down to where it's needed. And I'd be interested actually in asking Vince about this because for years I preached about we need more money, need more money, need more money, need more money. And California had the millionaire's tax and you guys got a billion dollars out there. And yet I keep hearing reports that things aren't any better. So what is the answer? I mean, what is going on here?
2: Well, with that particular tax, there, there were some, some issues, let's say in the implementation of the payments afterwards, because the entire thrust behind it in the first place, when, when the entire bill was written was to help the people who needed it most. However, When the bill was enacted, they put some caveats in there, one of which was that all the money had to be used for brand new services, so you couldn't continue to fund an existing service, for example, and another one was that you were not permitted to use this money in any way for involuntary care, which in many cases is the group that needs the most help. So... A lot of the money is still wow, that's in interesting. Yeah. Now, they've, they've made some changes to it in, in recent years so that, you know, it's, it's less restrictive than it was before, but it's still not exactly how it was supposed to be.
3: I think you guys also did one other part to that, which is what we did in Virginia, which is, the, didn't uh, Arnold, whose name I can't pronounce, last name, say, well, since you have all this money, we're going to cut your regular budget and let the new money pay for that? Because what, here's what happened in Virginia. After Virginia Tech shooting, they everybody got excited and said, oh, my God, we got to do something. So they put aside, uh, I think it was $42 million over a two-year period to improve mental health care. And then two years later, they cut the budget, and they cut $50 million out. So, you know, <laughs> it's like two steps forward, three steps back. Yeah. And I thought that happened in California. But that may be too into, we, into the weeds, but I just – I, I, you know, it's like stepping on a balloon when it comes to mental health and then I'll be quiet. It's like stepping on a balloon, you step on it and pops up over here and you think, okay, we'll do, you know, jail diversion. We'll do CIT training. We'll do, you know, post-release and then you find out about emergency rooms and then we got to do something about involuntary, you know, commitment and it's just, it's just so frustrating because people's lives are, people are dying. I mean, that's the bottom line. People are dying and they shouldn't be, they're being marginalized and they could be your son, they
1: could be my son, husband, father, and it's wrong. It's wrong. Exactly. To tie this back in a little bit, you're absolutely right about the different pockets not working together. And it's not that the individual pockets are necessarily wrong. Uh, one of the ongoing debates that I have in, in advocacy is if you know, people talk about we want all the money to go into serious mental illness, the sickest of the sickest of the sick. And I, I'm certainly not against helping you know, people who live with serious mental illness. In fact, I'm very much pro it. Uh, the problem that I have is giving them all the money because then as soon as they become a little bit better, as soon as they get well, they maybe get stabilized on medicine, they get therapy, they get help. Uh, then they're going to need case management. But there's this this idea that, well, if you need case management, you're worried well. Just go get a job. So they they don't want to fund that. Well, then there's a group that just wants to fund case management to help people get back to work, live on their own, move out, manage day-to-day life, and move on. Well, okay, that's fantastic. Let's fund that. But then they're like, hey, let, let's not help the seriously mentally ill, though, because that's that's somebody else's problem. In actuality, we have all the pieces that we need. We just seem to be too stupid to recognize that an individual living with mental illness is likely to need multiple pieces to live well. I certainly did. At different times. Right. Yeah. At
3: different times. No. No, you're exactly right. But you have to look, you know, just like you, I've had to learn along the way. I went down to the Virginia legislature. I gave an impassioned plea. I said, look, Housing First and an ACT team or PAC team, they can cut, they can cost half as much as keeping someone in jail, in Fairfax County, 50000 a year. They, we can save money. We can save lives. Housing First, ACT team, let's do it. And a legislature came up, legislator came up to me and he said, Pete, Whose pocket's being picked? He said in your jail, the county pays for you know uh, uh, if it's seventy five dollars a day, which I think it is, it pays sixty dollars, and the state only pays ten. If we switch it to mental health, we'll have to pay the sixty or the whole seventy five so it's in our advantage to keep keep people in jail rather than paying for housing first, et cetera, so you got to get by that mindset you got to have people start looking at uh, uh, the, the totalitary of it, not just at their own little pocketbooks. And that's a, t- that's a tough sell.
1: Well, yeah, it, it's a lot of government bureaucracy. And as I'm fond of saying, the number one task of a bureaucracy is to protect the bureaucracy. So it, it's mm-hmm. difficult to get them to share um, because they see that as defeat. So here we are guys preaching to the choir. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Just who, who can we get to take up this mantle? So, uh, <laughs> You know, our, our listeners are, are very passionate about topics like this. It's one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on. You know, I, we get a lot of email that says, what can I do? What can I do? I think you're a great person to answer that question. When somebody, you know, a listener to the show is going to write me and say, Gabe, loved Pete, love you, love Psych Central. What can we do? Pete, what can they do?
3: Well, I think the first thing, and it's because of my background is I always say, tell your stories. Uh, look, uh, when Tom Price, uh, was secretary HHS before he got in trouble for taking private aircraft, he got up and he talked about my book. Well, how did he know about my book? Because a person at his church whose son got arrested gave him a copy of the book. You don't know who you might be helping with this broadcast. I wrote a piece for USA Today and three years later, later a woman sent me a, a, a note. She said, my son was homeless. When he finally decided he wanted help, he went into a shelter and they found this weathered little clipping in his pocket that he had circled over and over and over and over where it says mental illness is an illness. There should be no shame in having it. Now, when I wrote that, I had no idea that this guy would carry it around for three years. You see, you, you throw out the seeds, write to your newspaper, do it anonymously, make it known. You, you'll find somebody has similar story. Our best advocates right now are, are the police and the, and the sheriff when it comes to demanding that these people not end up in their facilities, and we got to keep pushing that because they're starting to build better facilities, and the jails are going to be where they're treating people, and that is wrong. we got to educate prosecutors. But the biggest thing people and individuals can do is get out there, get involved, tell your own story, join Mental Health America, or, or NAMI, or Serious Family with Serious Mental Illness. I mean, look around in your community. Try to find someone else who shares your interests. You can go to shelters. You can go to housing projects. You can go to these places, and you'll find people. You know, look, I gave a speech to 105 uh, judges in Oregon. Four of them had their kids in prison because they had mental. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And what frustrates me is if you believe the one in four that NAMI says or the one in five that the National Institutes of Mental Health says, Uh, that's a huge number of people. We should make our voice heard. We shouldn't be embarrassed about this. We should be demanding action. We should be demanding that we get better treatment.
1: Amen. Yeah. (laughs) You just (laughs) got a standing ovation, and I never stand. I I am am the laziest guy you will ever meet. (laughs) Pete, thank you so much for agreeing. My pleasure. Uh, We had a great time. All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can get one week of convenient, affordable, private online counseling for free anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash We will see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohol, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com.